Drunk Dish contains adult language that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. straw so I put my drink in a sort of bumpy bamboo glass <laughs> very good all right I think uh, <laughs> nice sweet I, new artwork oh yeah I, I can hear Dan tell Dan <laughs> to shut up he's playing Rocket League he'll be fine I'm fucking nerd yeah all right, hello and welcome to Drunk Dish, where three delicious dishes explore food history and get pickled in the process. This is episode number 26, I think. Time yep. has no meaning. Numbers <laughs> are made up. Uh, where we'll be discussing school lunch, I think. Yep. Yes. Uh, I'm Melissa. I'm Amy. And I'm Kate. <laughs> Just go in the same order, guys. So if you guys can't tell because of the shit storm of a world that we live in. Normally we record these together. It's a great excuse to get together every couple weeks and like hang out and nosh and get drunk and stuff, but we can't do that. So we are attempting to do it remotely. Being responsible adults. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's why it probably sounds a little funny and is going to be a little bit of a weird episode, but you know what? We're being heroes for staying home. So deal with it. Yeah, we're heroes. That's right. That's us. We're on the we're on the front lines of our bed. Yeah, I'm technically on the back of my bed, but yeah. <laughs> All right, so uh, that's out of the way. Uh, now that we've introduced ourselves every week, Kate asks us not every week. God damn it! Something change. If only every episode. Kate asks us one food-related question, sometimes three or four. Uh, so, Kate, what is our question? Okay, so it's a two-parter. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, tried to be, you know, real on the nose and timely, right, for our the goings-ons. Um, so the two-part question is this. Um, one, what is your need-to-have stockpile kind of food, like, for you know, what's going on. Um, and also second part is, have you found a, um, a guilty pleasure or a, like, I want this probably more than, <laughs> more than, um, than I necessarily normally would be maybe because of what's going on or because like, you're not sure whether when the next time you're going to be able to have Oreos is. Yeah. So, so like food, both food, food things? foods, yes, food. foods, foods. Okay. Can we even, though, even though the liquor stores are essentially <laughs> essential and open right now. Yeah. Which, I mean, they are essential for upsetting reasons. Sure. Yeah. Which I know and posted a dumb tweet anyways. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I said the same thing initially and then I like checked myself. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was the thing. I was like, so I posted a thing that was like, ooh, liquor stores are essential. Why? And then people were like, you know, because maybe they don't want 
alcoholics detoxing and taking up hospital beds when we need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're open. And I was like, that's a really good point. But I tweeted this, so I'm going to continue to argue uh, the opposite, even though that's not what I believe. So, yeah, it was not a great time for me. It's a poor choice. Here's here's the thing. All all we can do is learn and become better because of <laughs> mistakes that we make. So, yeah. Just... <laughs> I don't know if Amy's still here. Amy, are you still here? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We've lost her. Oh, no. I'm back. Hey. Oh, no. I took the opportunity of disconnecting to shove as many Pringles into my mouth as I could. So you wouldn't have to hear the crunching. Food. I mean, you guys know, you got to know what it's going to be. It's- uh, so I have, I have a bet on both of you guys. Okay. I, I was talking, talking about this to Dan on right before this. So let's see. I, I was going to say we should have a game show where we each wrote down each other's answers, but oh, we don't have that technology. Oh, <laughs> if we were still actually using video, that would have been cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, what were, are you going to tell us what your bets were? Do you want, um, oh, I, okay. Um, my bet for you, Melissa, was peanut butter. And Amy, my bet for you was frozen pizzas. Mm. Yeah, You're that's wrong. correct. You're wrong for me. Oh, really? Yeah, frozen pizza's trash. She'll oh. eat it in a pinch. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so pizza dough or. <laughs> yeah. Um, I didn't have any pizza dough or flatbread or anything today, so I made naan for the first time. Oh. I made naan like, from scratch. You made naan from scratch? Yeah. Dang, really, I gotta wipe you up. <laughs> it was really simple. And then we we used that to make flatbread pizza today because I wanted, the kids and I both wanted pizza. I didn't have anything. We improvised, like, I had, like, three slices of mozzarella cheese and, like, a lot of Italian shredded cheese for lasagna or whatever. Mm-hmm. I improvised with that. It was delicious, though. That sounds so I just Yeah. So I just need like I just need pizza ingredients. Like so it doesn't even have to be pizza dough. I guess if I just have flour, which is not it's not like a food food, it's just an ingredient, but Well flour's very important right now and yeah. hard to get. Yeah. Yeah, luckily we have a local um bakery that they're um open for like takeout orders, but um they are obviously not producing the same amount of baked goods as, as they normally do. So they're selling off their bulk flour and eggs. They're like measuring out like it by poundage for the flour. And if you bring an egg carton, you can get a dozen eggs for like two bucks. Wow. That's, that's great. awesome. Yeah. So we've been, uh, we've been figuring out where to go for what, but I guess if I had to pick like a food food that, well, I guess technically this is an ingredient too, but like eggs, like eggs. I will, okay. I will eat eggs morning, noon, and night, and eggs are a key ingredient in a bunch of stuff. Like the kids will eat eggs. That's like a staple, which is a good thing that we got chickens because uh, <laughs> they're not producing eggs yet. Yeah, come August, we'll be, we'll be lousy with eggs. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna get like fifty to sixty eggs a week. Jesus. So we'll, I'm sure we will consume most of them and give the rest to a few neighbors. So. That's really cool. Yeah, that's good. I hadn't thought about eggs. Melissa, what was yours? Well, mine was peanut butter. Oh, it was. Okay. Yeah, but now that I'm thinking about it, like, I'm already sick of any variation of a peanut butter sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm over it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, like, I mean, eggs, yeah, I've been eating a lot of eggs. 
for sure. And then obviously baking a lot. Mm -hmm. So probably bread, but I've been making the bread. So uh, I'm going to stick with peanut butter. That's what my heart tells me, even though I'm getting sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) It's only because I've been home for three weeks. So like, that's a lot of peanut butter sandwiches. Right. Right. And And then the other one was like a guilty, guilty one or yeah. Or like, you know, the, the, like the, yeah, the soothing, the the item that you needed, like the snack or the food that is was like, okay, I need you to have know that. this one. Kate. Is it you Swedish should, fish? <laughs> no, no, you should know mine. I sent you guys on a mission to get them and you failed. <laughs> oh, your chips. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Sour cream and onion, uh, sun chips. Yeah. How did you try? Did you eat the other ones? No, they still are unopened because then we were able to go to the store that week and I, and they had them. So I bought them. So I've had like three bags since then. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So I haven't opened the garden salsa or whatever ones yet. Greg says they're good. I don't know that I believe him though. <laughs> All right. That's a, that's a good, that's a good guilty pleasure. Mm-hmm. My guilty pleasure is like a five-year-old version of Melissa's choice. It's Pringles. So it's still chips. I love Pringles. Pringles are so good. Like just, just straight up regular Pringles or like flavored? Regular. I don't, I'm not a big fan of flavored chips. Like I just want them to be salty and potato-y. Oh my God. If you could see me, you would see my shocked face. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) I know. Surprise. Yeah. Right. Did I? A big box of those like individual sized Pringles cans. Mm. So we've got like 30 of those in different like flavors. He nice. just ordered them. They came in one day and I'm like, what? And he's like, Pringles. I was like, okay. <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened to you guys is Greg finding out that you could bulk order things. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Jake came home from the grocery store today with, like, the two biggest boxes of Pop-Tarts I've ever seen in my life. Like, they each weighed, like, several pounds. Nice. They contained nice. they contained six normal-size boxes of Pop-Tarts within the larger box oh my, of Pop-Tarts. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. I know those boxes. We buy them for work from BJ's. Yeah. And he got yeah. two of them. <laughs> well, uh, that's... How about you, Kate? Oh, um... So mine would be, and it's a, sort of like the same for the first couple of weeks, finding eggs was a challenge and mm-hmm. then finding flour has been a challenge. So for me, mine is chicken breasts because I mm. eat, we chicken breasts like they're going out of style, which, you know, I guess right now they are. So, um, <laughs> so that's, that's definitely mine. Like my freezer has, you know, two packages of them, I think, in there. And it's stressing me out because that would not be enough to get me through for two weeks if I needed it to. Um, And then my guilty pleasure. uh, And I have no idea why this is not like a like a thing that I eat as a regular. But like I had the worst craving for Lucky Charms the other day. And um, they make now this thing that is frosted flakes with Lucky Charms marshmallows. Kate, and no. Yeah. No. Yep. yep. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds delicious to me. Like, I can't even tell you how good it was so good. 
<laughs> and I ate them like so three. I know. And I don't eat like sugar at all at all. So I was, yeah, I can't eat them at night. <laughs> like it's definitely not. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's, I don't know. I don't know why. I mean, Lucky Charms marshmallows are like terrible, but this stuff is just so good. It's real good. <laughs> I, I love Lucky Charms, but this whole pairing something that's already so sweet with something else that's super sweet, I'm just not. Well, but I mean, Lucky Charms are frosted, like the, the little oat things are frosted that's anyway. True. So like the amount of sugar. Barely. Is not really, mm, it's. They're not very not, sweet. Trust me on this. <laughs> I have compared and contrasted in this past week. <laughs> They're pretty equal. When I was a kid, my grandmother, when she would watch me, she'd give me a bowl of cereal that would be like Lucky Charms or Cocoa Puffs, like something really sugary. And then she'd always give me permission to add a teaspoon of sugar to the milk. What? Yeah. So I was Best. always bouncing off the wall as a child. Yeah. Wow. That's why you have such poor eating habits now. Eh, I mean, I'm an adult. I take full ownership out of my <laughs> of shitty eating habits. <laughs> I try not to blame to blame anyone. It's nature versus nurture. That's very true. Well, very, both very of true. them are working against me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, so the, I thank you for, for sharing those those delectable delights. Um, Melissa, <laughs> what are you drinking tonight? <laughs> what am I drinking tonight? Because unfortunately, in the current situation, I could not uh, ask my fellow co-hosts to go and get a bunch of ingredients for a fancy drink that they're going to have like one time. So uh, I decided to make myself a quarantine cocktail. Ooh. Uh, I got this recipe from a YouTube channel called Cocktail Chemistry. Um, if you've never heard of it, it's a really, really great uh, cocktail channel. You should check it out. Um, this is actually a recipe from um, The Gentleman's Companion by Charles H. Baker back in 1939. Um, while it's stated that that's where this comes from, I literally could find no mention of it on the Internet besides in this Cocktail Chemistry episode. Huh. So I don't know what the deal with it is. Like I found the book that it's supposedly in um, online. I found the gentleman's companion, the one from 1939, but obviously I didn't like search every page of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I couldn't find any mention of this online. If you look up quarantine cocktail, you just get a bunch of people making like quarantinis and stuff. Um, yeah. Quarantinis. Yeah. Oh, I do have to tell you, so the recipe this is from, from Cocktail Chemistry's channel is specifically one where he does six different um, quarantine cocktails, and one of the ones he does, he makes with emergency. Nice. Oh, God. I'm like, God damn it, Amy started this on our fucking show, and everybody's stealing it. Because, like, bad. if you look. Yeah, if you look up stuff to make right now from stuff like 100%, there's a bunch of emergency cocktails out there. Yeah. <laughs> it's, hey, you get you get your boost of uh, vitamin C and B vitamins. Mm-hmm. It's got some nice fruity flavor. It's got some bubbles. Mm-hmm. And then you just mix it with whatever booze you want. Yeah, I think this one in particular was like tequila, 
Uh, and he added a little bit of like orange juice and soda water or something like that. Yeah. But anyway, so that's what I'm drinking. Um, it has one and a half ounces of light rum in it, a quarter ounce of gin, a quarter ounce of dry vermouth, a quarter ounce of orange juice, half an ounce of lemon juice, a quarter ounce of simple syrup, and an egg white to get this beautiful fucking foam that is so good that it's still on my drink and I'm actually getting kind of annoyed because the drink's <laughs> gone and I only have foam left. <laughs> and just drinking egg white foam is not very good. Mm. Um, which is why, yeah, which is why I do usually prefer to do um, the aguafaba foam. But that also has its own kind of funny taste that lingers. Mm-hmm. I just I like it a little bit better than the egg white, but the egg white definitely foams up better. I mean, this drink is beautiful. Um, and what I did for this one is um, I did. So what you're supposed to do when you use an egg white is you combine all the ingre- ingredients um, in a shaker and then you like you shake it with the egg white in it and it gets foam. And then you add ice after because the ice um, like hampers the foam from getting super foamy. Mm-hmm. So you shake it twice, essentially. But for this one, I actually did the reverse where I shook it with ice initially without the egg white in it and then strained that back into another shaker tin. So like all the pulp and everything got strained out already, put in the egg white and then sh- shook it at the end with the egg white. And that's what produced that like insane foam that you guys saw. Nice. Uh, it's pretty okay. good. It's honestly, uh, I didn't need to put the simple syrup in it. I could tell you wow. that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if we were there, you would. Yeah, I'm really jealous because I'm drinking a bottle of three dollar wine mixed with Sprite. Yeah, I was gonna ask. I want to know what you guys are drinking. So I saw your work. Three dollar wine. Yeah, there was uh, there was a deal at Walmart. We got three bottles for nine bucks. Uh, a Pinot Grigio, and I'm mixing it with Sprite. And I had a, a White Claw uh, hard seltzer earlier. Very nice, very nice. Kate, what are you <laughs> drinking? Okay, so um, I asked, I phoned a friend. Um, I, I sent that, I sent a picture of the pitiful contents of my of my selection uh, to to friend of the uh, <laughs> friend of the show, Jill, and mm-hmm. she suggested um, Bacardi with the seltzer, which so I was trying to get as close to your drink as I could. So I had Bacardi, not <laughs> not not um, spice drum or anything like that. And then I had I didn't have orange juice, but I had Clementine seltzer. So that was close. Um, but then she suggested a dash of elderflower liqueur. So I've got a little bit of that in there and, um, uh, what else? Oh, and a little bit of, uh, lime juice. Uh, and, um, it wasn't sweet enough. So I threw some maraschino cherries in there. Honestly, it sounds delish. It's pretty good actually. (laughs) You, you're way, you're putting in way more effort than I am to this, Kate. I I mean, and I've I've had like three sips of it and I'm going to have pink cheeks pretty soon. (laughs) Yeah, my drink's already gone. (laughs) Too small. 
Um, so yeah, I think that's all we got. So Amy, it's your turn. I feel like none of this is going to be funny. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) So please tell us about the history of school lunch. Sure. Um, sorry, I shoved an Oreo right in my mouth right before you went to me. Of course. I would expect nothing less. So give me a second to chew and pull up my notes. <laughs> oh, why did I think that this would be different than any other recording session? <laughs> oh, boy. I really want Oreos. We, like, I bought some when I went to the store two weeks ago. My mom had bought some when she went to the store four weeks ago, and Jake bought some today. So we have, like, we have way too many. So I'm really, I'm doing, like, a civic duty of... no man um so i hope it's okay with you guys um i've kind of like a timeline of the school lunch program and what it's about and like how different cultural changes have affected it over time and kind of like a decade by decade like what did they eat as school lunch but i also kind of want to do a plug at the end of the episode and i want to mention it now too that there's a really great nonprofit in new hampshire I'm sure there are other amazing nonprofits that are similar in other states, too, that do the same thing. There's a nonprofit in New Hampshire called N68 Hours of Hunger, and its whole mission is to provide uh, students who are on free or reduced lunch programs in the state of New Hampshire with food to take them over the weekend. And they're seeing an unprecedented need right now because of coronavirus and school closings. So all those kids that normally get school lunches free or reduced no longer have access to those. Um, so if our listeners are so inclined to donate, I would ask that they do donate to N68 Hours of Hunger, uh, which is a great nonprofit that serves New Hampshire school children. Yeah, that's great. And again, I'm sure that other states have very similar programs. If you want to mm-hmm. donate your home state, um, there's a lot of stuff that you can do right now from the comfort of your home that keeps you safe and still helps uh, a lot of people. So that's a really great call out. Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like yeah. I'm being very professional on this call because I've been on calls for the last like week with work. <laughs> this is really my most great. professional call so far today. Really great call out, Amy. I uh, really <laughs> liked how you're leaning in uh, and you're providing us some headlights into um, how we can help during this ongoing crisis. Yeah, I, really I think, that, I think if anybody forward. wants to, you know, put that in the parking lot for discussion <laughs> at a later date. Yeah. <laughs> Need I need I quote Winston Churchill? Oh, let's please don't, please don't. Oh boy. Okay, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take us back in time, as I often start with taking us back in time. <laughs> I love you guys. Sound effect. I love I'm doing that. the arm thing too. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, man. So I'm going to go back to the 1890s because school lunches are like a relatively new phenomenon. Um, And there's something that uh, especially the United States is relatively new, too. So back in the 1890s, um, schools weren't necessarily like mandated for kids. Like kids could choose to go to school, but a lot of kids in rural areas especially would just stay home and help their families around the homestead or the farm or whatever. Uh, so they'd tend to livestock or they'd help with farming or, or do cooking or cleaning or things like that. So in the 1890s, there is not a large amount of school children, especially by today's standards. So um, there were some school lunch programs that helped uh, children who were less fortunate or children from poorer households. But they were all they weren't like organized by state or federal governments at all. 
so they were organized by like private nonprofit organizations. So there were like women's groups and family mm-hmm. groups. And the first school lunch program was actually established in 1894 in Philadelphia by the Star Center Association. And they created what was called a penny lunch program. So they literally just charged students a penny for lunch. Which, I like that. Yeah. It was a really good price. And then other cities like Boston followed suit. Um, in Boston, there was the Women's Educational Industrial Union, and they served hot lunches specifically to high school students. And they had like a central school where they would they actually like built a little kitchen and then they prepped all of the food there. And then volunteers would deliver them to area high schools in Boston. So it, even like when school lunches and school lunch programs start to be born, um, it's not something where there's like a kitchen in a school or where there's a cafeteria or anything like students would just like take a break from their studies and sit outside or eat directly at their desks or thing. It wasn't like a, like a, there wasn't a designated space to prepare the food or a designated space to eat the food. Um, and at this time too, rural classrooms would often have things like a stove to heat the classroom. And um, the teachers would start to bring in pots and pans to cook on. And this is around the same time too, that there's like a formation of parent teacher associations. Wait, 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 wait. Did you say they, the classrooms had stoves? Yeah, not like like um like wood stoves, right? Like yeah. with the flat tops. Oh, so oh, okay. So for like heating. Right. And, then, and so they would just kind of re or dual purpose it to like cook on it too. Yep, exactly. I was just picturing like a actual like <laughs> oven. Yeah, like, no. In a classroom, I'm like, what? Wait, what? In the middle, they would just open the oven door, stand around it and warm their hands. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not quite. Uh, it was like old-timey stoves, you know? Old-timey. Uh, yeah, so at this time, like, what kinds of foods, like, students were eating were things like soups or stews. Um, this is the time, too, when uh, hot dishes start to, to become popular. So we talked about that in our Minnesota episode. Um, not this dish. What? I said, not hot dish, no. Yes. Uh, casseroles. And then, like, the in rural communities, the whole shtick was, like, every kid would bring one ingredient from home. So, like, the onion farmer's kid would bring in the onions and the carrot stone farmer's soup. kid would bring in the Super stone. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, crack, crackers and milk or celery soup was really popular, which sounds horrible. Nobody likes uh, celery soup. If you go to the store right now, the only soup that's left is cream of celery. Yes, that's <laughs> accurate. Uh, and then there would be, like, sometimes there'd be, like, fancier stuff like apple shortcakes, but it would all be, like, kind of like a community everybody pitches in type of thing. So, like, different moms or aunts or grandmas would, like, bake stuff or cook stuff. Or, like I said, like, the carrot farmer's kid would bring in the carrots for the stew or the soup or whatever. So they'd all work together uh, to make, like, a communal meal for the kids, which I think is kind of cool. But, uh, yeah. And like things start to change in the early 1900s. So there starts to be like state laws that mandate education because they're like, hey, maybe we shouldn't just have like four year olds working on the fields. Maybe, maybe we should like. What you know, is this crazy talk, you socialist? <laughs> teach everybody to read. Um, Where's my freedom to abuse children? <laughs> well, I mean, up until then, that was why you had kids. Like, work the farm. <laughs> Yeah, you're taking away their labor force. Rude. 
who who else in the 1800s would choose to have children if not to like secure <laughs> that you would have a workforce? That sounds horrible. There's no doctors. Like, I mean, there are doctors. There's no like hospitals. They're not like real doctors, though. Yeah, they are. They're like bite down on this like wooden dowel while I amputate yeah. leg from gout oh, or gosh. something. I don't know. <laughs> I made most of that up. I don't know if any of that's accurate. But... <laughs> Uh, can you guys hear me pouring more wine in the background as I talk to? No. No. Well, I'm doing Thanks it. Thanks for letting us know. Yeah. <laughs> so in the 1900s, there's these state, state mandates um, for education. So 34 out of the 45 states in the 19 uh, early 1900s mandate that kids under the age of 14 have to have education. And then, like, one of the original reasons for having public education is to battle inequity in the country. So people saw education as a way to improve your station in life. And they're saying, okay, like, we need this is one way that we can try and give kids like an equal footing, regardless of who their parents are or where they come from or how much money their family has. What a novel idea. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So. So, like, as we talk about school lunches, too, like, this is kind of like the thread that's constantly in the background is this idea that school is as a tool that the federal and state governments uh, yields to battle inequity. So just kind of keep that in the back of your minds as we journey through time. Um, (laughs) I've already forgot what. Oh, boy. This is going to be even worse over over calls than it is in person. Yeah, no, I'm extremely easily distracted right now. (laughs) What is the kitten doing? Um, He's sleeping in the window. (laughs) He's a good boy. Sorry, continue, Amy. (laughs) I miss giving him pets while we record. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to fast forward just 10 years to 1910. I know, we're speeding through this. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I was wondering if you wanted to... <laughs> I was waiting for it. I didn't hear it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Miss Mike, I'm trying to open this bottle of cerveza. Oh. Modelo Especial. It's got fucking gold leaf all over it. I don't know how the fuck you're supposed to open it. You're fancy. Oh, my God. I hate it. It tastes like piss water, but it's in my fridge. <laughs> anyway, continue. It's worse than Corona, not the the disease that's killing people. Worse than uh, the beer Corona. That's not true, actually. Thank you for specifying that, though. Well, I want to make sure. (laughs) Oh, boy. So in 1910. (laughs) Yeah. uh, People should realize that there's like a correlation between healthy food and smarter kids. So, like, the communities are seeing that people who have access to better food and healthier food usually have better attention and just, like, have better results in this, like, kind of standardized education setting. So, like, in public education. And they see, they continue to see schools as a vehicle to promote equity. So, um, access to food becomes another key vehicle to promote equity, too. So, 40 cities across the United States by 1910 offer lunch programs. Um, and the prices are going up a little bit. So I mentioned the Philadelphia penny meals, right? Um, mm-hmm. by 1910, New York City has, uh, three cent meals. So they have, uh, food for all of their public school kids 
costs three cents a piece. And then these are like actual menu items from the New York City um, three cent meal uh, school menu. So piece oh, menu. Yeah. <gasps> yes. And there's I'll post a link to it. There's like a book that's available for free via Google. Mm-hmm. Um, like their Google Reads or Google, whatever. It's all Google Books. I can't remember. But anyways, it's like it's um, specifically like all of the menus from like early school lunches. It was like a guide for how to cook for school children, essentially. Yeah, I need to see one of these. Yeah. So I will I will post that to the blog. But they had uh, pea soup, lentils, Mm-mm. rice and bread like together. Mm. Super nutritious. Stewed prunes. <laughs> Rice pudding and candied apples. And these were all things that you could purchase for a penny more. They were like add-ons. Candied apples, like candy apples? Yeah. That you break your teeth on? Yeah. For school lunch? Yeah, but it it cost you an extra penny. That would be a four cent. Walk around with a stick (laughs) and a candy apple? Yep. That's just really fucking weird. Yeah, a lot of this food, I'm just like, this doesn't seem like smart school lunch food but it's this is like this is great food compared to what is to come come the 1980s oh good okay yeah (laughs) and then rural communities are still relying on staples like meat and potatoes and stews and casseroles and hot dishes and things like Like that like good stuff yes right and that's so like the the issue at this time too right is transportation of food so if you live in a rural community with a lot of farms it's really easy to get fresh vegetables and fruits. So, like, yeah. the community would kind of pitch in together, like one of these organizations, one of these nonprofits, or the families individually would send their kids to school with the individual ingredients, and they kind of all work together. It would be this communal thing. But if you live in New York City, it's a little bit harder to get your hands on fresh produce, even the eighteen or the early 1900s. So, like, by the time you ship it in, it might already be rotten. Uh, and this is before, like, we have all the different kind of, like, varieties of, like, apple hybrids and stuff like that that have way longer shelf lives. So it was just harder to to um, not have some sort of, like, canning or preservation techniques employed, um, which which just diminished the nutritional value of the food over time. So and then by the time the 1920s comes around, there's, like, a brand new like uh craze that's washing over the country which is home economics classes <laughs> people are real excited about these um and home ec classes themselves are like kind of wild because it's like it's in response to the industrialization of the united states right so like you have all these women joining the workforce for the first time ever and they're like oh the workforce is is not equipping our women with the skills necessary to be a good wife and mother <laughs> Um, so suck home, I can, oh, you cut out. I didn't hear you. Oh, I said suck my dick. It's fine. <laughs> did y'all, uh, sidebar, Twitter sidebar. Yeah. Um, did you guys see the tweet about like, it's like, it's funny to see all this macho, like, uh, you know, super masculine bullshit about how to get through a crisis is to be like tough and strong and like not show emotion and have like you know, be able to fix the machine. And then now in this crisis, what we're relying on is like bringing the community together, supporting each other, uh, baking, cooking fresh food, like all of that stuff. It was a really super good tweet. Nice. I have not seen the tweet. I didn't see that tweet, but I did see a tweet that was something along the lines of, um, and this was, it was from a woman and she was like, I find it very interesting that all of my male friends that have children 
can FaceTime anytime. They are, yeah. they have absolute freedom. Um, their partner will take care of the children, but the, um, women who have the, that have kids and need to like FaceTime or talk to their friends or family or work, uh, have to do it after the kids are in bed. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking bullshit. Right? <laughs> I'm retweeting this tweet so that you guys will find it easier. Nice. But it's really good. Anyway, sidebar over. No, it's fine. There's a lot. There's Twitter is both like an endless hellscape of despair and like an eternal fountain of hope right now. It's this weird dichotomy that I can't get over, uh, and I can't stop looking at it. Yeah, Twitter's a paradox. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we have all these home economics classes in the 1920s, uh, specifically in Boston, where this starts to take off because there's the uh, a lot of industrialization, industrial activity in and around Boston. And essentially, they start they use the home economics classes as a way to teach the girls how to cook. So then they make the girls cook for the whole school. Um, so they like practice like preparing these large lunches for all the elementary students three times a week. And there's still at this time, there's no lunch rooms, there's no cafeterias, there's no like uh, most schools don't have like formal kitchens or anything. They're just kind of like hodgepodgey things. Um, but other cities start to adopt similar programs with the home ec programs. So, like I said, the girls would learn the skill of cooking and then they'd provide food for the whole school. Very so, cool. yeah. Um, and then there's like there's all these hurdles to like standardizing this at this time, right? Because like kitchen equipment's really expensive, and like I said, it would require like remodeling at the schools too, because there's no like unified place for kids to eat. They're all just eating at their desks at this point, or they're eating outside in the schoolyard. And by the time the 1930s rolled around with the Great Depression, um, there's a whole bunch of cultural and social changes that are happening. So we have Farmers who can't sustain after the Dust Bowl, they're facing financial ruin. There's prices that are collapsing, markets that are collapsing, laborers can't work. And the inequity that schools and school lunches are designed to combat just keeps growing and growing and growing. And all these uh, poor kids are experiencing way higher rates of malnutrition and hunger. Um, so there's places, there people that come up like during this time, like Margaret Mead, she's this huge advocate for public health during this time. And she advocates for healthier options for children and to provide school lunches um, by the state and by the federal government so that it, it doesn't overburden the kids and the kids' families. Socialism. Yep. Exactly. Uh, and you can see, like, all, like, so far it's like this weird hodgepodge system of just communities banding together and trying to do, like, what's right by their community. But obviously people are still falling through the cracks and everything. Um, but even at this time, like there are staples like soups and, and casseroles and things like that. This is the first time, too, that we see things like peanut butter sandwiches um, nice. and then just eating things like raw apples, bananas and veggies as like lunch staples because they they had longer shelf life. They're easy to transport. Um, we talked about bananas in our banana foster episode, obviously, but they like last a really long time from the transportation of where they're grown in South America um, to transport up in North America. And apples have longer shelf life, too, and veggies that are grown locally. And then there is this one recipe from the 1930s, which I'm going to blame the Great Depression for, which is a peanut butter and cottage cheese sandwich. Ooh. It's just so nasty. I just can't get on board with cottage cheese. No, mm. no. Mm. I no. want to, no. but I can't. <laughs> no, I don't want to. I'm good with just saying no. 
Yeah. Like, that's... <laughs> Just say no to cottage cheese, kids. Yeah. Right. Ugh. Ugh. It's so nasty. Yeah. But they, yeah, they, you mix yeah. the peanut butter and cottage cheese together to make a filling for the sandwich. Yeah, okay. I mean, I've heard some weird things with, like, ricotta and stuff, so I'm not really surprised. It's just so nasty. Yeah. One of our episodes, you had stuff from, like, a – oh, it might have been our peanut butter episode, and then, like, one of the sandwiches was, like, peanut butter and mayonnaise. Oh, right, yes. People will just put peanut butter with anything because it's great, and they think that it'll make that other thing great, but it won't. Yeah. (laughs) It's not that horrible. Yeah. But luckily, like, I was just about to say, luckily there was World War II. (laughs) That's not so lucky for a large portion of the population of the world at that time. Yeah. Um, But yeah, when World War II happened, we had, like, the excuse, I guess, to have the new deal with FDR. Mm -hmm. And, like, there are huge changes to the way that we take care of people in this country. So, like, that's when Social Security was established. Um, That's also when there becomes kind of a more federally supported school meal programs for kids. Um, So right before World War II, but, like, on the heels of the Great Depression, um, one of the things that the feds did to try and stabilize the markets was they started purchasing surplus crops. Um, Our federal government still does this today, and it's kind of problematic. for a myriad of reasons. I'm sure we're going to do an episode on corn eventually. And there's like, there's like a corn mafia. It's crazy. Anyways. Yes. Um. <laughs> corn mafia and the maple syrup mafia have like gang fights. Ooh. Probably, it's both sugar. Yeah, it's true. But they, the Fed started purchasing all these surplus crops like back in the 40s to try and stabilize the markets. And they would the uh, federal government also would employ thousands of women to cook and serve hungry students. So, like, I didn't know this. I always thought, like, oh, the first time like there's obviously the Industrial Revolution with women entering the factories um, then, which was like the first major wave of women in the workforce. And then in my mind, I always think like World War Two is the second major wave of women entering the workforce to like help, you know, build bombs or or, mm-hmm. you know, like Rosie the Riveter, like to build airplanes and stuff like that. But. There is actually right before World War II, all of these women are employed to, to cook and serve hungry students all over the country. So the instead of the kitchens being like in the schools, there are these kind of like local kitchens that are set up and they would prepare all the meals centrally and then disperse them to area schools. Um, and all these meal programs, they're run by the states, but they're supported by federal funding. So it's not like a federal mandate yet, but there's federal money to back it up which is a huge change from how it's been up until this point. And in by 1941, they're serving 2 million lunches a day. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Obviously when world war two comes around, there's like labor becomes more scarce because all most of the men get deployed. And then the women are called to the factories to support things like, you know, building airplanes and tanks and stuff like that. Um, and there was food rationing, as we talked about in our Jello episode, too, right? So, like, all of the excess went to the war effort. So there's, like, no longer surplus crops for the federal government to purchase to feed hungry children. They're feeding their troops with it. Um, so it's a completely different shift. So the New Deal, like, makes leaps and bounds for the hungry kids, but World War II kind of, you know, diverts a lot of the funding and the resources to supporting the war effort. Which is another reason why war sucks. Yeah. 
Yeah. This episode is good for am I right? <laughs> Sorry, what'd you say? I said this episode is a downer. I mean, a lot of the levity comes from us being face to face. True, true. Uh, so yeah, this is the new normal, guys. Get used to it. Y'all are gonna be <laughs> depressed as fuck. <laughs> We're just adding to that depression. Yeah. Uh, it's not you guys. Be happy she's not talking about you. <laughs> I mean, maybe yeah. I am. Yeah, maybe said, yeah. Maybe one of our listeners is the parent of a hungry child. Maybe. Yeah, I'm making it worse. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Um. So after World War II ends, 1946, the National School Lunch Act is put into place by Harry S. Truman. Um. And the way that they're able to allocate funds and resources to feeding hungry children is, like, kind of fucked up in, like, the most American way that you can feed hungry children, I feel like. So this is actual passage from the actual bill. Uh, the bill was written by Senator Richard B. Russell Jr. And this is the passage. It says, it is hereby declared to be the policy of Congress as a measure of national security to safeguard the health and well-being of the nation's children. So, like, yeah, yeah right? <laughs> So, like, oh. the, it goes on to talk about, like, the expanse and establishment and maintenance of non-school lunch programs. And, like, that stuff's all great, like, in grants and financial aid. And that stuff's all great. But, like, the whole, like, like premise of this is, like, we can't have soldiers. We can't have a safe country. We can't, you know, protect ourselves from, like, the Nazis of tomorrow if we don't feed our kids. Which is just gross. Like, it's a gross way. To look it's at it, like to justify something that is very important and good. Like it's right. you don't need to justify it that way. Like just, just feed the kids. Yeah, just feed them. Yeah. So by the time the mid 1940s roll around, though, there's things like you start to see kind of like quote unquote ethnic dishes making their way into school lunch programs. Mm-hmm. And by ethnic, I mean things like Spanish rice. Meaning it's got a little bit of turmeric in it. Yeah. <laughs> some spices. Yeah. Um, there's also like some very like American and like Anglo-Saxon staples like creamed, um, uh, creamed beef, cornmeal pudding, uh, fruit shortcake, scrapple. We talked about scrapple in one of the episodes and I can't remember which one it is. I don't remember what that is. I must have blocked it out. I think scrapple. it might be the Alaska episode. No, Scrapple is like a is like a Philadelphia, New Jersey kind of thing, isn't it? Like a the, the description is pork mush. Yeah, it's like spam. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, thank you. Did, you. did you talk about it in the in the diners one? Maybe I feel like we talked about it last time we got together and recorded, but that night is a blur because I was very drunk. <laughs> So I don't know if it was relevant to the topics of those episodes or if we're just talking about it, but I'm pretty sure we talked about it then. Um, yeah. So like you start to see these other foods kind of creep in even more in the fifties too. Um, in the fifties we have of course the baby boom. So we have all these people coming back from the war effort that like just banged the second they got home uh or banged the bright before they left. So you have all these little babies that are ready to go in the school system by the 1950s comes around. And we have uh this huge increase in the number of school-age kids 
And this is when you start to introduce not just hot lunch, but also like cold lunches. So pre-prepared, like, like cold cut sandwiches and things like that. And by 1952, lunch, school lunches are a $415 million business. Um, this is also like the era or two of like lunchbox shows, which I think like I never like like phrase them that way in my mind I guess but like things like hop along Cassidy or Gunsmoke where it's like like the whole idea behind it was to like sell you lunch boxes and thermoses and stuff like this is the first time where there's lunch boxes that you can buy that are like very commercialized you know um so more and more kids are like packing their lunches and it's like it's a thing but then there's also the school lunch program which is you know a lot more money is being funneled into it and there's a lot more um like thought and focus put into like what kind of food we're feeding the kids too. So it's not just like what's grown in the community or what can we get our hands on or whatever. It's, it's like, how can we um, ensure that these kids grow up strong so that again, we protect our national security. Mm. So like they would uh, feed them like really like protein heavy dishes, like cheese and meatloaf and sausage shortcake, uh, ham and bean scallop. And then there's also um, like one on one of the menus, I found ice cream, which is just, wild oh yeah and then like things like tomato wedges or pork and apple uh cottage cheese and again still sandwiches too very nice stepping up their game yeah and then in the 1960s there's the child nutrition act of 1966 so both eisenhower and nixon expand the budget for the programs over the years and in 1966, more subsidies are added for lower income children and they add things like school breakfast programs, too. And they give the U.S. Department of Agriculture like the final say on what the menus should be. So before this, the menus could like really be decided on a local level, like schools could fucking feed their kids, whatever, like with no real oversight other than parents complaining. So this is the first time when they're like, oh, the federal government's going to decide what what is and isn't appropriate food to feed your kids. Okay. Yeah, which has mixed results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's always a battle between like the people in charge. In order for that to work, like the people in charge have to know what they're doing and want the best yep. for the children. I was going to say, and be working in the best interest of the people, not of right. the pockets. Which is not yeah. always the case, but mm-hmm. in a, it should, it's supposed to be. Right, and like that's like. This whole crisis that we're living through every day has really highlighted the fact to me of like how fucking broken our country is <laughs> because yeah, like real bad. Yeah, it's it's not it's not great here. And like it's all because like everything's privatized and everything's about the bottom dollar. And like that's kind of what happens to school lunches, too. So like. The federal government's put in charge of it, which I think is, like, not a bad thing, like, inherently. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture specifically is the one that's supposed to dictate. So, like, you think, okay, Department of Agriculture, they probably know something about food. But they also, like, their focus is to make sure that, like, American farmers are profitable. So if there's a surplus of corn, they're going to find a use for corn and make corn syrup out of it. And, like, okay the use of soda vending machines in schools. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Mm Like, it's this... Uh, it's this weird, this weird situation we've set up, but we also have like in the sixties, there's more and more, again, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see me. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
ethnic foods like pizza and enchiladas and chili. Whoa, 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 whoa. Did you put garlic in this? this Maybe. Way too ethnic for me. Maybe. You know, we're, you know, we're uh, two decades after World War II. So by this point, you know, we have kind of forgiven Italians. Um, <laughs> we've kind of, we've kind of like been okay with, uh, you know, Mexicans and South Americans, like in the Texas area. Uh, we're, we're kind of like open to things. And it's also the era too of like, you know, in the early sixties of like, you know, Kennedy and like hope for the future and like all these like big cultural shifts happening too. Like we feel like much more like a global, you know, community than ever before, except for the Russians. We hate them still. So, <laughs> and the Cubans, both of those people. Yep. Yep. Uh, and then there's also this big push too to like make things because like the U.S. system is like weirdly built on like the bottom dollar in every instance, even when it's the government, which is meant to serve the people. Um, this idea of like centralizing things to make it more profitable. So like, like I said, New York city builds like a central facility um, as opposed to making school lunches, like at each individual school. So they build like this essentially like giant kitchen where they like make, um, make uh, a bunch of food for school lunches and then deliver them to the school. So they, they employed about a hundred people and they made, an average of 300 peanut butter jelly sandwiches an hour. Oh my gosh. Right? That's a lot. It's just a lot. I bet there's like some sort of contest out there where it's like who can make the most peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in like 15 minutes. Oh, I'm sure. We I should do an episode on food contests. Oh, I'm adding it to the list right now. Okay, good. Uh, and this is also the first decade that we see fish sticks. Yep. I couldn't find any cultural significance for fish sticks, but fish sticks are fucking nasty. And um, either of you Doctor Doctor Who fans? Yes. Did, no. did you watch when Matt Smith took over as Doctor Who and he was trying to figure out what his favorite food was? Yes. It's one of my favorite things ever because he's in a new. If you don't know, the Doctor can like regenerate his body, and that's how they've been able to make the show go on for so long because when one actor leaves, they can just regenerate him and he's a different actor. Right. Um, oh my God. Kitten is literally trying to open my door with his paws. <laughs> it's the cutest thing I've ever seen. Get out. Um, <laughs> so like he lands and he's newly regenerated. So he's like trying to figure out his life or whatever. And he gets into a house and he's trying to figure out what he likes to eat. And he like tries an apple and he hates it. And I don't know, he tries a bunch of stuff, and then he lands on freaking dipping fish sticks in custard. Ugh. So essentially dipping fish sticks in pudding. No. Gross. From what I can tell. So I loved, gross. I loved fish sticks when I was a kid. I never, I could never get into them. And they they just grossed me out even more as a grown-up. But I went fishing a lot as a kid, so, like, I would see, like, the fish, like, when we pulled it out, and it's like, poor lifeless eyes as it like gasped for water. <laughs> I would circle back to my statement about tartar sauce making everything better. Uh, mm. And, and fish sticks are just a vessel for eating tartar sauce. Okay. <laughs> I have come around to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, we bought like the frozen box fish sticks. They didn't even taste like fish. No, they just it taste was- like, Breading. Breading. Yeah, and ketchup, which is what I dip them in. Also a good choice. Just have mozzarella sticks. At least that tastes like cheese in this inside. 
It's breading and cheese. I mean. Or marinara. Not even remotely the same, but okay. It's better. That's my point. No, it's better. You're right. It's good. It's not the same. Yeah. (laughs) I'm anti-fish stick, if you can't tell. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, so at the same time, we, so, like, fish sticks, I feel like, are the first kind of, like, like, fast food type item. That like starts to make its way. Well, pizza is too, really. That starts to make its way into school lunch system. And by the ni- 1970s, like fast food places are big. Like they're growing. They're getting a lot of popularity. You have chains opening up all over the country. And at the same time, too, all these federal nutritional regulations are starting to be weakened too by different interest parties. So, like a sample menu from the 1970s. Um, has things like chili burgers, hamburgers, oven fried chicken, buttered corn, and fruit jello on Ooh. on the school menu. So like you see like this huge shift from like the sixties to the seventies of like what kinds of food are considered like adequate for um nutrition. And again, this is all being dictated by the US Department of Agriculture oh. within reason. So like Congress can pass legislation and, you know, recommendations can be made and, you know, the guidelines overall can be revised year to year. So like the there are special interests that can influence those and things, but the Department of Agriculture is kind of like where the buck stops in terms of like who decides what makes it onto the menu. And things get really bad that by 1979, the U.S. Department of Agriculture issues a minimum nutritional value like guidance. So like the they kind of dictate, okay, like we can't just have like hamburgers and, you know, French fries for lunch every day. Like we have to have uh, vegetables, we have to have fruit, we have to have like a balanced meal provided to students. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Ronald Reagan comes around. Ooh, Reaganomics? Yeah. He was our best president, you know. He was fucking horrible. Anybody who points to Reagan as, like, this idealization of, like, what conservative movement could be, like, has never met someone who's been, like, affected by HIV or AIDS or has never met someone who's been affected. Well, no, that's the problem. They haven't. They haven't met anyone that is anything other than. And they don't care to. Yeah. True. True. Have y'all ever seen that video clip? It's from when he was an actor, but of him just like slapping a woman across the face and someone put it to music and it's just him doing it over and over again. Jesus, no. Yeah. It's disturbing and hilarious at the same time. Uh, it's like, hey, he's one of our presidents. Still yeah. better. There's there's some parallels there. Mm. Yeah. Oh, it's, I'm making it worse again. Sorry. Uh <laughs> I'm going to pull you back out of that depressive hole, Amy. I know. Come on out. So in the 80s, Reagan decides he needs to make major changes to the school lunch program in order to keep costs down. So I just want to point out at this point that, like, the school lunch program is, along with uh, Medicare and Medicaid, the most popular government program ever created. Mm Mm-hmm. Like those, those like things that go hand in hand. They're created, both of them are created during the New Deal. Like they have, they're like probably the best examples of like socialism or socialist democracy in the United States. They're both wildly popular. Like no one would ever in their right mind 
like choose to actively repeal them outright, mm. but but cuts are made to them and changes are made to them. And yeah, so I, I just want to point that out. Uh, but Reagan realizes that fresh food is expensive. So, and he's determined to cut costs by $1.5 billion. Now, if I go back through my notes, let me see. Cause I threw out a number. Yeah. So like in the 1950s, just 30 years prior, school lunches, uh, for the entire nation cost $415 million. And Reagan seeks to cut $1.5 billion from the program in the 1980s. So obviously there's inflation, costs go up, the program expanded over the years too, right? Cause there are expansions for like free and reduced lunches and breakfasts and things like that. But $1.5 billion is going to put a huge dent in this. Yeah. So one thing he does is he reduces the number of poor kids who are eligible for free and reduced lunch because he's a fucking ass. That's great. And then he compels the U.S. Department of Agriculture to declare that ketchup is a vegetable. Yeah. Requirements (laughs) for vegetables. Tomatoes a fruit, you dumb son of a bitch. Yeah. He doesn't care. He doesn't (laughs) care. Because if it's a vegetable, that means he doesn't have to serve the kids carrots or corn or whatever. It's essentially thick (laughs) Kool-Aid. I'm saying that right here, right now. Ketchup is thick Kool-Aid. That's so nasty. I don't think I can eat ketchup again now or Kool-Aid. I doubt that. Yeah. Well, I don't have ketchup on most of my stuff anyways. I used to have a cousin who would put ketchup on his pancakes. Um, Okay. <laughs> I put it on my eggs. Yeah, I yeah, I understand that. There's there's just some people that are like crazy about ketchup and yeah. it's not like it's very sweet and vinegary all at once. Like it's not I don't know. I don't even need it for french fries. Like I'm happy to just eat french fries without ketchup. Mm. So, I could I could live a life without ketchup. That's what wrong, I'm but you know, you do you. Okay. Well, you had some strong feelings there. I can sense it, Melissa. Always. Come on. What am I here for? That's true. Uh, so, yeah, by this the, by this point, because we have ketchup is a vegetable, and we have, like, an entire nation built on fast food, and all of the, the rules about, like, what is and isn't healthy have been, like, kind of weakened and stripped away decade by decade, these are the kinds of things that school children ate in the 80s for their school lunch. Chicken nuggets cheeseburgers, this is funny that it specified this in the menu, but rectangular pizza. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, I'm picturing, like, Elio's or whatever, like, because my yeah. school had some. Not even, as good as, not even as good as Elio's. Yeah. Uh, Jello, chocolate pudding, fruit roll-ups, Capri yes. Suns. Yes. And some schools even had Oscar Mayer Lunchables. This is when Lunchables oh, were dating. No. <laughs> that was great that's real bad and then she just gets worse in the 90s because the my lack time, of baby. my time the lack of funding doesn't diminish the amount of kids you have to feed so schools turn to private industry to innovate mm-hmm. and try and pick up the slack so there's this huge push towards privatization because you know free market capitalism all that jazz right yeah it works uh, great yeah, it's wonderful. It works great. It it lifts all people. Um, so the decrease in funding led to increase in private meddling, and then uh, at the same time, childhood obesity rates start to skyrocket. Oh, yeah. Weird. Really, and all those chicken nuggets and Elios doesn't uh, <laughs> make, make all the kids svelte. 
Hey, guys, remember, correlation does not equal causation. Let's just That's remember true. that, okay? That's true. Right, That's true. right, right. Except for in this case, it 100% is caused by this. True. Also true. <laughs> so in the 90s, Time Magazine released this, like, huge, like, expose about school lunches, and they said that, quote, this is the headline, school lunches are flunking lunch, which is super <laughs> clever. Some dorky editor was like super proud of themselves for that. Really, yeah, get a real fist they tossed that. a lot of they tossed a lot of things out there, but that yeah. was <laughs> it was great. It was the one that stuck. Uh, and then companies like Marriott and Sodexo start to enter the game. So like, I don't know if you guys. We should also do a whole episode on Sodexo in Marriott. It's an interesting fucking company. It started as gas stations. It's weird. Anyways. Sodexo is like the company that has like all campus contracts ever like and and um, museum contracts, too. So like like the Museum of Fine Arts or the Courier Museum in Manchester, New Hampshire, they have Sodexo food. Um, Southern New Hampshire University has Sodexo food. Uh, Manchester Community College has Sodexo food. They're like just fucking everywhere in New Hampshire. I don't know if it's the same way like nationally, but I just know anywhere I've gone in New Hampshire that has like a cafeteria. It's run by Sodexo. Huh. Uh, so they got their start in the 90s because of Reagan, because he destabilized everything in the 80s. So there was this huge need that private industry went to fill, but private industry is built for profit, not for the greater good. So there's all sorts of fucked up shit that comes from that. Nice. So, yeah, by the 2000s, uh, half of all schools offer fast food for lunch. Like, and when I say fast food, I mean, like, they have contracts with, like, Pizza Hut or, like, like actual <laughs> fast food chains. Yeah, we had Little Caesars Pizza. Yeah, we had Papaginos. Yeah, we had Little Caesars, and we had what essentially were McRib sandwiches. I can't imagine that mm-hmm. they would have gotten them anywhere else. They were McRibs. They were yeah. so good. Oh, my God, they were so good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And then all schools also sign contracts like Pepsi and Coca-Cola. So they all have vending machines and soda fountains. Um, and obesity rates just keep increasing. But at the same time, there's this kind of like organic counterculture that begins to increase. So this is the time when companies like Stonyfield mm. or like Annie's are founded. So nice. there's this like desire to like, okay, like we're really fucking over our kids here, <laughs> making them all fat. Like let's give them some actual good foods. That still tastes yummy. So there's this like kind of you can see this reflected on the school menus of this time, too, where you have things like like that are trying to appeal to like the big, bold flavors of fast food, but like still be kind of healthier alternatives. So there's things like grilled jerk chicken or barbecue pork sandwiches and like all the menu items I found from the 2000s. I was I mean, by that point, I was pretty much done school like I was in my last few years of high school. But I'm just like. I do not fucking remember anything that sounded that delicious being served at school. It was like spaghetti and meatballs or like mystery meat. Like that's what I had. I had the, I had the 90s and 80s like school lunches. Yeah, same. Which is just depressing. And then when 2010 rolls around, who's in the office but Obama? I miss Obama. Hmm. He did a lot of shit, but still, I miss him. Yeah, I mean, compared to our current situation, leaps and bounds, but yeah. still very problematic. 
Um, <laughs> but Michelle Obama had her like, um, you know, like, uh, what is it called? The just move or whatever, like her fitness thing. And she had like the organic garden and the, at the white house. And then they like, they asked like celebrity chefs and stuff to like show how to prepare like wholesome, but like yummy, easy, affordable meals. So like the whole, um, <coughs> program becomes kind of like a pet project for them. So like the department of agriculture is given more authority to meet new nutritional standards and new nutritional standards are created. And then, um, like I said, Michelle Obama was like a huge advocate for this too, for like the healthy lunch program. Mm-hmm. And Obama signs into law the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act in 2010. Um, and of course, there are a lot of critics of this, um, and they claimed that the food tasted bland and was unpalatable. And because of that, led to food waste. And I'm like, all healthy food, well, not all healthy food tastes bland. Healthy food can taste amazing. Well, but like, compared to something that is fucking filled with sodium and fat, it's not going to yeah. have the same. Yeah yeah no if you're used to mcdonald's like everything tastes bland like if greg and i go to like a nice restaurant oftentimes he says that the food is bland that it doesn't taste like anything and that's because he loves fast food like yeah it's just just how it is but and that's the like that's the problem like yeah. Like our for decades kids have been used to eating this kind of like high sugary high salty like high fat food that's not great for them and then like to introduce like these healthier options maybe you know aren't as flavorful or whatever don't taste quite the same but they're much better for them so critics said that because the food tasted gross it led to food waste which i feel like is like a very five-year-old counter argument yeah this is gross it doesn't taste good <laughs> throw it in the trash which is like literally my children at dinner every night. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine where they get that from. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> I'm so open to new flavors and tastes. I don't know where they get it from. But uh, but in 2016, there was a study published by JAMA Pediatrics, and they saw that there is like a huge uh, health increase for children <laughs> who were going through this lunch program. And by this point in 2016, the food industry for school lunches is now $10 billion a year, the cost. So it's still a very, it's a growing industry year over year. Um, They also expanded to obviously like who could qualify for free lunches. They expanded the breakfast (laughs) program and things like that. Um, And at this point, the kinds of things that are on school lunch menus are things like turkey hot dogs and fresh broccoli florets in addition to like the fast food things that kids are used to from the past few decades which is pizza and burgers and chicken nuggets so there's kind of more of a balance but obviously store still a lot more needs to be done um and then today some sobering statistics one in five children struggles with food insecurity in the u.s Mm-hmm. So I, I plugged uh, in 68 Hours of Hunger at the at the beginning of my kind of spiel, and I'm going to plug them again or research, you know, similar organizations in your home state or home country. Um, and, and I don't actually I don't honestly know if this is like a purely American phenomenon or not, but it's been exacerbated by private industry and deregulation and things like that, which sucks. Um, so it might be a purely American phenomenon, but they are a great nonprofit that helps to confront this and, uh, provide 
a delicious and healthy nutritional food to kids over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it all week round right now because there's no school programs, which means Mm -hmm. a lot of communities don't have free or reduced lunch programs available for students in need. So this whole thing was started to, to build equity. And like, I feel like as a country, some of us kind of lost sight of that. So yeah, just a little, (laughs) just a little. Yeah. Feed your kids. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, And then when I say your, I mean like society's children, not right. Individual parents feed your kids. Like, yeah, you get it. I got it. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's what I got. So like that's that's the history of the school lunch program, where why it started, where it is today, how fucked up it's gotten. It's yeah, great. good time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and how we're in a pretty bad spot right now. So like Amy said, if there's any way that you can help, if you want to look up organizations in your area, I guarantee you that there are places that are doing that. I know um, a lot of schools around here are still trying to provide meals every day um, because a loss of being able to go to school obviously means a loss of meals for a lot of kids. So um, I think a majority of the children in the city that I live in are on the free or reduced meal program. Um, So a lot of them probably aren't getting as much food as they normally would. So great, great organization, Amy. Thank you for enlightening us. Yes, happy to. Public school, there should be good free food. Stop fucking around. Yeah. <clears throat> and I feel like all kids, like all kids should be fed for free, but that's probably just a socialist in me. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand why we live in a country where there are hungry children and homeless people, but that's. Well, I mean. Yeah. There doesn't need to be. Yeah, there doesn't need to be. I, I mean, like, logically, I understand because people fucking suck. But like capitalism and it's about profit and you can't profit off of giving people reduced or free housing and you can't profit off of getting people reduced or free food. Like, no, it's just a long term investment. Like, mm -hmm. like, that's the thing that's fucked up about it is like you want to just talk dollars and cents. You don't want to talk the humanity of it. Like, okay, let's talk dollars and cents. It's actually going to make our country way stronger economically in 30 years. Like, it's just (laughs) a fucking 30 year investment. Like. Yep. I mean, trying to explain to people how much money they would save if we had universal health care. It doesn't it falls on deaf ears. Yeah, I know. I know. This has turned into the Socialist Hour podcast. I mean, Uh, if anyone's been listening to us (laughs) (laughs) for any amount of time, they know where we stand. Yes. So that's fine. Um, Yeah, it's great. Uh, Another thing I want to call out, too, is not quite as pressing because obviously Hungry children take precedent over pretty much everything else. But uh, a lot of restaurants and bars and stuff have had to close down during this. Um, and a lot of them may not be able to open again. I've seen multiple local restaurants that I actually really like that have announced that they won't be reopening after this because they just can't sustain during this time. So if there are restaurants or places of business that you like that are offering mm-hmm. like takeout or curbside pickup, check that out, too, and support those People don't feel bad about ordering takeout. Like, that's what they are living on and surviving on right now. So get that takeout uh, and also tip your drivers like a million percent. Yeah, yes. a million, at least a million percent. <clears throat> yeah. And if you're nervous about ordering takeout, too, like if you're immunocompromised or elderly or whatever, and you're you're really concerned about, like, even contactless <laughs> delivery, most of these places are offering, buy a gift card. Um, right. 
you know, buy a digital gift card or, you know, call call up the restaurant or whatever and ask if there's a way that you can prepay pay for a meal for six months from now or three months from now or whatever the fuck this is going to be over uh, so that they get the benefit of your money now and your support now. And, you know, they don't necessarily have to, you know, feed and deliver uh, feed you and deliver your food right now, too. So there's a lot of places are offering gift cards for this very reason, too. Very cool. Yeah, everything sucks. Everything's shitty. Uh, <laughs> but we have each other. Yeah. And hopefully you all drink with us while, while you listen to us. Yeah. Because we know you're drinking anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> also hope that this is listenable. <laughs> yes. Um, so thank you for hanging on with us and uh, going on this journey with us through this difficult time. We're going to be figuring this out as we go. Um, so thank you so much. And I think that's all we got. Does anybody else have anything they want to say? No. Nope. Oh, I was going to say, I take that as a no. Oh my God, it's like a work call for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Line, Melissa. Huh? I said, let's take this offline. Okay. Oh, God. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Drunk Dish. For recipes and more, please visit drunkdish.com. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Apple Music. You can also follow us on Twitter at Drunk Dish Pod and Instagram at Drunk Dish. And again, thanks for listening. Bye.